0: we just finished a series on boundaries and if you were you were here walking through it i hope that you you got the key takeaway which is that god is very much a god of order and not a god of chaos you see it in the beginning in the garden with creation and you see it all the way through to the cross of christ god because he is a god of order and not chaos Uses, has used, and is using boundaries to bring about order out of chaos. He does it relationally. We spent most of the series looking at, at boundaries to bring functionality into our crazy relationships. And we also discussed two other primary areas in our lives where we need to bring some order out of chaos. If you were here, I know, uh, if you were here, you know, you, I didn't have to tell you what they were. I just said to you, there's two other areas in almost all of our lives where chaos is reigning and God would like to bring order. And almost all of you, without any prodding, said, yeah, with our time and with our money. We addressed time. I told you I wanted to hold off on the money thing. According to CNBC, 73% of Americans, the richest country that's ever existed, 73% of Americans rate money as their number one cause of stress. It's the number one crazy maker in most of our lives. And there is nothing even close if you look at the study. And just like our study of relationships and time, God, over time, has used boundaries. He's prescribed boundaries to help us bring order there. Some of those boundaries you're familiar with right? If you've been around the church, you've heard of the concept of tithing. It was an Old Testament command that the Israelites were to give back to God the first tenth of whatever it is that they collected or they harvested or or from their income, just kind of right off the top, right? Truth is, if you study the scriptures, there wasn't one tithe commanded of the Israelites. There were actually three different tithes commanded of the Israelites, Two of them, 10% of one certain kind of tide, another 10% of another kind of tide with a different kind of purpose, were annual tides. The third one was to be given every three years. So on an annual basis, if you lived in Jerusalem at the time Jesus was alive, you were giving around 23% of your annual kind of income back towards the purposes of God. Which is astonishing when you consider this. According to a guy named Eric Beinhocker, he wrote a book called The Origins of Wealth. In Judea at that time, in the first century in Mesopotamia, the average per capita income was $600. And they were giving off the top, just 23% back to the work of God. Now, another boundary that God established with our finances to, to help us create some order in the chaos was this gleaning boundary. I spoke about it briefly when we looked at this quickly a couple of weeks ago. The Israelites were not to reap right up to the boundaries of their fields, right? Not right, not right up to the property line. They were to, to leave, leave some rows at the edges. And if any crop fell to the ground, the edges and the gleanings that were left, were to be left on the ground for the poor and for the foreigner. And so, yes, God has established boundaries when it comes to our finances, but that's not what I wanna talk to you about in the next couple of weeks. There is actually something, I mean, that's interesting, but I think there's something much more compelling, much more life-altering and powerfully individually transformative and culturally transformative when it comes to the concept of finances and boundaries. Follow me here. The reason, the scriptural reason, we're to have boundaries regarding our finances is actually multifaceted. One is to bring order out of chaos. The second, and we talked about this over the years. The second is that God's actual desire for you is your heart. That's what God desires. He desires to be in a relationship with you. So much so that He sent His only Son to establish that relationship, at the price of His own Son's um, blood. There is nothing that competes with our hearts, for, with, that competes with God for our hearts more than money. But the third, the third is maybe a new truth for you, and it's one that I'm, I've been studying for the last few weeks. It is a super powerful truth when it comes to our finances. God institute bound, institutes boundaries to bring order out of chaos in order to facilitate, to allow it to be possible, the paradox of generosity. Now, I'm guessing, right, you're an educated bunch that most of you know what a paradox is, a paradoxable statement is. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or, or proposition that when investigated or explained, it actually, and you can't believe it, see, that's the key to the paradox. When you hear it, you go that, there's no way that's true. But when you investigate it, it turns out to be well-founded. Some of them are familiar. Einstein is famous, actually, you can look this up when you get home, for two paradoxes. The first is what's called the Einstein paradox itself. Anybody know what the Einstein paradox is? Of course you don't. I didn't either. The Einstein uh, paradox uh, states, he argues, the description of physical reality provided by quantum mechanics is incomplete. There you have it. That is the Einstein paradox. I'm not even smart enough to understand why that is a paradox. I just don't even know what that means, right? But he's got another pretty famous paradox. Pretty smart guy, right? And so he he came up with two. The other one you're a little bit more familiar with. It's this statement. The more I learn, this is Einstein. The more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. See, that one you know. You've experienced it a little bit, right? We live by, life educates us on various paradoxes over our time here. We often scientifically and most often experientially know that some paradoxes are true. They usually hold. I'm not going to get into the scientific ones. You should look them up, though, because I spent some time in it this week, and they're fascinating. Scientific paradoxes will blow your mind. But experientially... You know a lot of paradoxical things. Let me give you a couple, how about this one? The more desperate you are to keep someone close, the more likely you are to drive them away. That right there is the singular reason I never had a date in high school, that paradox. Never learned it, right, never learned it, kept repeating it. How about this one, if you have children, this one resonates with me all the time. The more you dislike a trait in somebody else, the more likely you are to have the trait yourself, right? Doesn't seem to make any sense, but if you live long enough, you're like, oh, right? Or how about the eternal paradox? This one, I, I, I think all of us have come to realize is true. The only constant is change. Makes no sense, but it's true. See, here's the thing about paradoxes, right? Paradoxes are powerful. Because a paradox forces you to rethink the way you naturally think. Very few things actually have the power to get you to reorient your nature. The power of paradox can be transformational. Without coming to see that through paradox, right, if you don't come to understand truisms related to paradoxical things in our lives, it is likely that you will build your life you will build your family, your career, you will parent your children, you will live out your morality and your, spiritual, and your spirituality on what seemingly is true. This should be true. You, you will live most of your life on common held beliefs. But if anybody actually stopped and looked at them, looked at them, tested them, they can be proven to be observably false. It's the power of paradox. Now, as you can imagine, the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, because they're so powerful, are filled. Anybody ever study the paradoxes of the Bible? I mean, I could give you so much homework. One is study the paradoxes of science. They're fascinating. The next is study the paradoxes of the Scripture. Michael Card, anybody remember Michael Card? He was one of my favorite artists when I became a new believer. One of my favorite songs when when I was young in the faith was a song he wrote titled, God's Own Fool, And it was about, the line in the song, it's about the power of paradox in the scripture. Let me just read you a couple lines from from it. He sings, it seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. I love that. He concludes this way. For the the power of paradox opens your eyes, and then the converse, and it blinds those who say they can see. The power of paradox now, again, if you want some self-study, I encourage you to go home and spend some time discovering all of the paradoxes in the Scripture, absurd or seemingly contradictory truths that our faith literally rests on. But I have to tell you, there is one I believe to be the most common paradox in all of the Bible, the one that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, and it has to do with what is now, and this is not a scriptural term, but what is now being known in scientific circles as the paradox of generosity. In other words, there's something about generosity. There is an expectation regarding generosity that turns out, if you just believed it, because it would be what you would naturally think about being generous, it turns out that it is completely wrong. It's untrue. And, right, if you believe it and don't change your mind based on the proof of the paradox, if you don't change the way you think about generosity, this really could ruin your life. I'm not overstating that. You'll see. This is both, and again, I just I, I don't want to be grandiose about it. This is a scientifically and scripturally proven truth. This is not guesswork I'm up here telling you about. This is not a nice moral equivalency. This is a scientific principle that is proven objectively true. I'm going to start with the most overshadowing paradox about Jesus and money. Many of you know Jesus taught predominantly in parable. Most of the time it was through stories. Depends on how you count them, but but many would say he taught about 30 different parables. 19 of the parables, two-thirds of them, are set in an economic or social context. You know a lot of them. The parables of the lost coin, of the talents, of the unjust steward, of the workers in the field, of the two debtors, of the rich fool. You could go on and on and on. Two thirds of his teaching. There are by some counts thousands of verses relating to economic and social issues regarding things like justice and wealth and money. In fact, after idolatry, it is the second most frequent topic in the Bible. In the New Testament, economic inquiries are discussed every 16th verse. In the Gospel of Luke, okay, Luke, a historian who set out to write the most detailed account we have of Jesus' ministry, in the Gospel of Luke, finances are talked about every seven verses. Which is weird. I mean, right? Can we just be honest about that? That's weird. So for Jesus, the concept of money and the role it plays in our lives in regards to w- what it does socioeconomically, right? Jesus seems to almost talk about it incessantly. Now, are you ready for the paradox? How much money did Jesus ask from, or for from his followers? None. Talked about it incessantly. Never asked for a dime. Well, that's weird right? In fact, he seemed quite content living a life free from material possessions. He he talks constantly about money. (laughs) He never has any, and he never asked for any. Anybody, do you ever wonder why? Like, why? Seriously, why? Don't give me a spiritual answer. Why is he doing that all of the time? And can the power of the paradox related to this principle, can it open our eyes to a lie that most of us have believed and a truth that maybe for all of our lives we've missed? And so as we launch launch into the series, I want you to know that this is not a a series predicated on giving or tithing. One time I I talked about money and somebody came up to me afterward and said, oh, I guess the giving's down, huh? And, And I get it. I mean, I get it, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a red-blooded American, too, and when the pastor gets up and speaks about, you know, anything regarding finances, it's like, oh, you know. Um, this, has, this has very little to do with giving to the church. In fact, giving is not down. Giving is at record levels at our church right now. So if there was ever a time to not even bring it up and ruin a good thing, it would be right now. <laughs> However, right? However, our, our elders, the, the guys you elect to, to run the church, they encouraged me to talk about this topic, and I'll share about a little bit more about why in the coming weeks. But together, I think we, we have felt recently a conviction that relative to the, to the topic of biblical generosity, we need, as a church, to do better. Now, if you know me, you know I do not like talking about money, uh, Yeah. yet. And that's why they had to encourage me to do this. How much more convicting and convincing do I need than this? It's from Paul's letter. Paul was, was teaching his, uh, his protege, Timothy, how to, how to pastor a church, how to, how to lead people. And, and here's what he writes to, Tim, to Timothy. He goes, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, there it is the competition piece again, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Again, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There is a concept there of generosity impacting this life and the next. So that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't like doing it, but I have to do it. Now, what... What I've discovered as I've been studying this over the last couple of weeks, this concept, this paradox, actually moves me from, as your pastor and friend, not just wanting to challenge you in this mindset, but to implore you to rethink things. So we have all this talk about money in the scriptures. None more than by Jesus himself. Jesus never asks for money and seems genuinely uninterested in it himself. Paradox one. What I hope you'll see by the end of this short series is that the power of paradox as it relates to generosity is prevalent everywhere in our story. That's what this series is. It isn't a series on giving. It is a look at the paradox of the virtue of generosity. You see it in the Old Testament over and over. I'll just show you one place, Proverbs 11. How about this? One person gives freely, yet, here's the paradox, gains even more what's the paradox, right? Enter the story. You read that, and it's like, oh, it's a Bible verse. No, it's not a Bible verse. One person gives freely, but they get back more. The paradox is if I just give freely, I have less. Isn't that the way we live? If I give a lot away, I'll have less for me. One person gives freely, yet he gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. There's the other side of the paradox, right? They're they're holding back, which which should keep them safe and and good. They they held on to their stuff, but they come to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Jesus, on, on more than one occasion, references, in fact, I might argue, the paradox of generosity is actually undergirding much of his ministry. But perhaps it's seen nowhere better. You want to see the paradox of generosity laid out by Jesus in a verse you've never thought about this way? How about this? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. You could just sit there and reflect on that one for weeks, right? I mean, at one level it makes no sense. And on the other, Jesus is trying to show you through this power of paradox, you need to reorient the way you think. He's telling us. I'm telling you, it's not the way you think. It's different. Trust the different. The Apostle Paul, right? Now we'll move further into the New Testament. Writer of most of the New Testament. In everything, he writes, he writes in Acts. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself. Which is interesting because these words are nowhere else in the Scripture. So Paul either got this from some of the disciples or when he encountered the re- resurrected Jesus as he did, Jesus himself told Paul, taught Paul this principle, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now you've heard that, but what does it mean? And you can't tell me what it means by telling me what it said. Well, it says, what's it mean? Well, it means it's more blessed than receive. What does that mean? Well, it means it's more blessed to give than to receive. I know, what does that mean? Because do you believe that? Are you orienting your life around it? I'll tell you what it means. Here's what it means. It means that generosity is paradoxical. It doesn't work like at least in our minds we think it should. It's everywhere, this principle in the Scripture. I'm going to show you that over the next couple weeks. I just love this. What's now being discovered by social scientists in some of the best universities in the world, secular universities, Literally, in Academia, in the Academica, they are setting up departments related to this paradox. Because what they're discovering is that this generosity paradox is not just scripturally true. It is scientifically observable, demonstrable, and provable. The question that these social scientists are now asking is the same one that the scripture begs us to ask of ourselves. For, for all of us as individuals. If it's true, if it is demonstrable and observable and provable, will you allow it in your life to be reliable? Do you believe it? Again, lots of studies out there. The predominant one is captured in a book where I got the title from the series from called The Paradox of Generosity by a guy named Dr. Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson, herself a doctoral student at the University of Notre Dame. It is a scholarly book. Maggie said to me the quotes I sent her. She's like, these are, these are some, some pretty, pretty snappy quotes. I said, well, it's a scholarly book. Um, they, they, they studied this for a very long time. They've pulled data together from what's called the Science of Generosity Initiative. But they wrote their discoveries to the best of, that they could. They wrote them more in every man's language because they are both that important and that hard to believe. And like any good scientific work, they kind of start up front with their findings. Here's what they write. And I, I'm telling you, once you start reading this, you can't put it down because it's so fascinating, at least for me. Generosity, they begin, is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that somewhere? By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. And letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move towards flourishing. Does any of this sound familiar? This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. Here's the thing about a good paradox, okay? Good paradoxes work both ways. So if in being generous which would seem for any generous individual to be a loss, right? If I'm, gener- if I'm a generous person and I'm giving things away, this for me is a net negative. I now have less than I could have had, right? And maybe if you want to look at it, and we need to look at it, and you'll see when generosity comes into play, this will be next week, this has socioeconomic ramifications to it. Maybe you want to look at it from the broad picture and you go, yes, if you're a generous individual, it's a net negative to you, but it's a net positive to somebody else. So it's- generosity is a zero-sum game. But that's not what the research shows. The research shows that everybody wins. So what's the other side of the paradox? And as I read you the other side of the paradox, I have to keep asking the question, do you really believe this? Do you really believe it? Here's what they found. He goes, the generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. Again, this is not the Bible, guys. In holding on to what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we're affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. That doesn't even make sense, right? The stuff we're trying to protect ourselves from, right? It's actually, we're actually doing it to ourselves. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. Wow. It is no coincidence that the word miser is etymologically related to the word miserable. If you read the book, they keep coming back to the one question. We can prove, they seem to be intent on this, we can prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that the generosity paradox is true. It holds. The question is, will you reorient yourself around it? Will you believe it? Here's what their research shows. I'm not going to get into the specifics today, maybe next time. But the generosity paradox impacts at scientifically, statistically significant levels these five things in your life. Happiness, health, okay, right there should be enough, right? Where you're like, okay, well, those sound good, right? Um, Purpose in living, why am I even here? Avoidance of depression and interest in personal growth. Generosity is actually a keystone habit that goes on to impact all kinds of other areas in your life. Now, I'm probably going to unpack some of those paradoxes in the coming week or two. But for today, I just want to share with you, they, they, they had five conclusions to, when they were done about, about their work. And then I'm going to share Paul's conclusion on the exact subject. Here's their five conclusions. They write, first, the more generous Americans are, the more happiness, the more health, and the more purpose in life they enjoy. Couldn't state it any simpler, right? This association between generous practices and personal well-being is strongly and highly consistent across a variety of types of generous practices and measures of well-being. Second, we have excellent reason to believe that generous practices actually create enhanced personal well-being. The association between generosity and well-being is not accidental, spurious, or simply an artifact of reversal causal influence. I told you, there's some, a lot of science in here. Certain well-known explicable causal mechanisms explain to us the specific ways that generous practices shape positive well-being outcomes. Third, the way Americans talk about generosity confirms and illustrates the first two points. The paradox of generosity is evident in the lives of Americans. Fourth, I like this one. Despite all of this, it turns out that many Americans fail to live generous lives. A lot of Americans are indeed very generous, but even more are not. And so the latter are deprived by their lack of generosity of the greater well-being that generous practices would likely afford them. This is the second paradox of generosity. And finally, as we mentioned above, many... This is so good. Again, I mean, I, I don't know what these guys are on the faith spectrum. Finally, as we mentioned above, many wise writers, philosophers, religious teachers, sages, and mystics have been teaching us the paradox of generosity for thousands of years. What today's empirical social science research tells us not only confirms what we might have known all along had we trusted traditional teachers. How about that? And we're here because we believe Jesus was more than that. Generosity is paradoxical. Do you believe it? Like, do you really? I mean, because I don't see anybody getting a checkbook out, right? Oh, I believe it. Really? Really? Do you trust the, you know, trust the science? Generosity is, pra- is paradoxical. And what scholars will, will tell you is the single largest discussion on giving and generosity in the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, in the city of Corinth. Relatively speaking, from a financial perspective, this church in Corinth was a, was a rather, again, it's a relative, it's a relative term, But it was rather well off compared to other areas. Corinth was kind of a metropolis city. It was a little bit, you know, like the New York City. You know, the church in Corinth would would be maybe even kind of like us, a little bit of an affluent church. Interestingly enough, again, right, paradox. Here's another financial, here's another generosity paradox. They were financially better off than most of the other churches. Spiritually, a disaster. Not even close. Another paradox at work. And so Paul writes to this predominantly Gentile church in the city of Corinth, asking them to be generous to the Israelites in Judea because they were suffering a famine. So he's asking this Gentile church to be generous with this Jewish church. And so he starts out in chapter 8 by telling them about another church, a third church in the city of Macedonia. Here's what he says about this city, this church in the city of Macedonia. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial... That's, the church was under some kind of persecution their overflowing joy in the midst of it and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity do you see the paradox i'm telling you it's everywhere once you start looking for it, it's everywhere for i testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Paul says their joy, even in their extreme poverty, right, under this this trial they're on, results in rich generosity, and that they gave, please hear this, okay? They gave, quote, entirely on their own, they, quote, pleaded to be part of the giving away of the little that they had. i got to be honest with you, I'm still working on a, a definition for generosity because I wanted it to be a good one, and I just didn't feel like I, it was complete yet this week. So next week I hope to have a good definition for generosity for you. But be, we, you can walk with me through a little bit of the, de- the de- defining of it today, right? Generosity starts out out of a heart of joy. It starts out not because it is commanded. It starts out not because it is required. It almost starts out with pleading. So now let's go back to the Corinthians. That was the Macedonians, and he's telling the Corinthians about this church. And so what does he say? He goes, look, I'm not commanding you, but I want to testify, or excuse me, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, here come guess what's about to come up? A few more paradoxes, right? And that he's going to relate Jesus, right, back to this paradox. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Though rich, he became poor. The the paradox of generosity through Christ, through his poverty, we become rich. You'll see it over and over again. This one repeated now for a third time in just a couple of sentences, This, this this definition of generosity. Quote, I am not commanded you. Generosity cannot be commanded. In fact, if you go back and you look at the work of the scientists regarding this paradox principle, if you are giving to get, the principle breaks down doesn't work. I mean, it's fascinating work. It does not work if somebody commands you to be generous. By the way, tithing, sitting around at home going, well, got to write out this stupid check to the church, right? That does not, that does not break into this paradox. That's obedience, right? Obedience isn't bad, but that's not generosity, You know, can I tell you what it also is? Most of the time it's investment because we're like, I'm going to do this because I hope to get something back. That breaks the paradox down. How important is this issue? Here's what Paul says. Well, here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also, here it is again, to have the desire to do so. And so now finish the work. So that year, here it is again, eager willingness... To do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. i got to pause here for a moment. Here's what God wants. Here's what the science shows is true. The paradox of generosity is not contingent on how much money, time, stuff you give away. It is not. Friends, I need you to hear this. Super important, okay? This is not a quantitative issue. It is a qualitative issue. The paradox of generosity has to do with motivation and it has to do with the heart. Over and over and over, you see the same issue in the scripture. Generosity must flow from an overwhelming sense of gratitude and joy, resulting in almost a pleading, please let me participate in this. You ever have somebody come up to you and you go, yeah, I was with my, my um cousin's husband, real successful Wall Street guy, and we were out th- this summer, and he was talking about how he came across this incredible opportunity, and uh, it was just this unbelievable opportunity, and he offered in on the opportunity to um, his two other brother-in-laws, and I'm just standing there. <laughs> Never occurred to him that he could have offered me in on the opportunity, right? Right? If I, if I wasn't a man of such immense pride, I would have gone, please, I'm begging you to let me in on this, Right? That's what's at the heart. It's a pleading for participation and eager willingness to pour out what we've been given, even if it's like the Macedonians where we don't even have that much. Because what God wants and what the science shows is that generosity at its core is a hard issue. And here's why, here's why this is so important. Do you know that generosity is different than almost ever, any other issue, any other virtue in the scripture? The opposite of generosity would be greed, Right? Anybody remember what Jesus said about greed? Watch out, he said. Be on the lookout for it. Because greed is different than any other kind of sin. Why? Because it is, it is the least quantitative one. It's very difficult to measure, which is why it's not that easy to give it easy, a super easy definition to it. Think about adultery. Imagine Paul starting a letter about adultery this way I am not commanding you not to have adultery if you don't feel like it, have it. He would never do that, right? He's not going to say, I'm not commanding you not to be adulterous. I'm not commanding you to be faithful to your spouses. It's, it's just if you want to. Paul would never write that. In fact, we know that he did. The scriptures don't, don't talk this way about other vices and, uh, and, and virtues. They don't talk this way about lying. They don't talk this way about stealing. They don't talk this way about gossip. Why? Because those issues are all quantifiable. You can kind of count them. You can see them. Nobody wonders if, if they've committed adultery. Gee, I wonder if I, I wonder if I, you know, you can wonder if you're generous. Nobody walks around going, I wonder if I'm an adulterer. Hey, you're not my wife, right? Nobody wonders if they've stolen or, or lied or cheated. But greed is different. Greed, greed hides. And so what the scriptures are teaching is, look, there's no dollar amount attached to this. If I give this much, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was just a dollar amount? Like, hey, just give this much. If you give this much. And in fact, some churches have that. You just give this much, then you get this much. Then, you, then you're generous. He, he goes on. Here's what he says. He goes, for if the willingness is there, the gift is accessible, Is acceptable. Okay, so your gift being acceptable to God, right, has to do with your heart, your willingness to give it. By the way, this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? Do you sense that there? It goes all the way back, way back. The gift is accessible, quote, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In other words... This is not quantifiable. This is not about dollars given. God does, it's not about hours put in. God does not look at amounts. If you give a million dollars away, but you have hundreds of millions of dollars, God is not sitting around going, wow, dude, way to go. Why do we know that? Because there's a story that Jesus sits in the temple one day by the treasury, and everybody's walking in, dropping their big gifts in, and the only one he was impressed by was the widow's mite. See, the second concept related to the definition of generosity that you can see we're starting to build, the first is it's a hard issue, and the second is it's a percentage issue. It it has something to do with with how we steward and manage what it is we have. It's related to what I have, not to what I don't. And so he goes on, he goes, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. There is, if you just read this and and it doesn't get unpacked, you miss a huge concept regarding generosity here. And, And he sets up maybe one of the most famous verses on the paradox with this story. What is written? he says. He's pulling a line here out of the history of his people, out of Exodus. He goes back to the the story of the Israelites wandering for 40 years in the desert where they couldn't provide for themselves, right? And they had to rely on God's provision for them through this concept of manna. We we said a couple of weeks ago, what does manna translate to? It, It translates to what is this, right? God provides for them food in a form that they could make no mistake about who was providing it for them. They didn't even know what it was. It was something never seen before. As we looked at, apparently it tastes good. It was good for putting into cakes. You could use it for food. And most of you know the story. The manna appears every morning, and the Israelites were commanded to go out and collect the manna. It didn't just hop into their bowls. Effort was required of them to go out and get it. And in the work, as you can imagine, some people did better at collecting manna than others. The young and the strong, right? Right? I mean, you ever watch an Easter egg hunt with your older kids and younger kids, right? Like, I mean, my, you know, my son John, I'm very proud of him, but that kid threw more elbows into Caleb's head on Easter morning than in any other day. <laughs> Caleb was always a little falling down. I'm not sure that would happen anymore, just as a side, but anyway. This is what we do, right? So the young have an advantage in collecting, uh, collecting the manna. are young and physically fit over the, over the aged or even the disabled, right? And so as you can imagine... they would have more than others. But you were commanded to only take what you and your family needed for that day and to give away to others what was more than that. In fact, some of you know the story, if you tried to keep it, if if, if you said, well, I got 18 Easter eggs, I'm sorry, Caleb, you only got two, but I'm going to keep them. If you tried to keep it, If you hoarded it, it would rot, it would spoil, it would likely smell. It would be of no use to you, and interestingly enough, everyone around you would know what you did. And they'd go, huh, what Paul is doing here for the church in Corinth, and for the church in Mendham, is he is liking their money to manna, and he wants us to see it in the same way. You and I have this propensity to believe, right, that we have what we earn. And to a certain degree, that's true, especially in this audience. I know you guys. As many of you know, I worked for 20 years in the city. I I got up every day and took the train, just like so many of you do. And and the scripture repeatedly commends the value of hard work and and that those who don't work shouldn't shouldn't eat, right? Nobody gets a free ride. But what Paul is doing is he's linking our money and our manna in a way to say, yes, yes. Yes, you worked for it just like the manna didn't jump into anybody, anybody's bowl, right? But please look back to the church. It, 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 please look back to what was going on in Exodus and think for yourself who provided it. You were born in the United States of America in the 20th and 21st century. I'm telling you, you could be the smartest guy, most hardest working guy in the room if I dropped you back in the rice fields in, in China 400 years ago, you'd be as smart as you want and as hardworking as you want and you might not be any better off than anybody. You were just given a gift. God gave you this opportunity, just like he did with the manna. And just like with the manna, some of the ability because of their gifts and their strength and their wit to gather more than others. Many around the world, because of where they live, right? If you go to the the Guatemala City garbage dump with us, right? Where they're born, They don't have the ability to gather all that much up. And then what we're commanded to do with the manna was to share it so that everybody had what they needed for the day. You do not store it up for yourself so that you can use it later, so you don't have to collect later. Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, your money is like manna. You collected it, but God put it there for you. God gave you the ability to collect it. Yes, you worked for it, but now realize what you should do with it. And this is for the church in Corinth, and I think for the church in Mendham, New Jersey, the beginning of the journey of becoming generous people. When you begin to see that what you have is actually not really yours, it was given to you anyway, you are just a steward of it, you are a manager of it, not an owner of it, and someday the owner is going to demand an accounting for it. And I think there's a second, perhaps less subtle reason Paul ties the concept of money to manna here, and it has to do with what happens when you hoard it. See, what's interesting is then when you hoarded it, it it rotted, and it smelled, and it gave off a stench, and people would walk by, and they would look and go, man, I'm disgusted by what you've done. Don't we live the complete opposite way now? I am so impressed by you. Don't we want to impress people with, with how much we've collected? Isn't that why we do so much of what we do? Look at me. Look what, I've, look what I've achieved. I think the danger here, the other side of the paradox here, if you will, is if you continue to do this, Paul is warning, I think Jesus is warning, that this, this concept of the manna and the rotting is what happens to our souls and our lives, you see this throughout the scripture. That's why Jesus is going, watch out. This is really bad for you. If you get greedy and you're not generous, I'm telling you what happened to the manna will happen to you. And he goes to remind them of the paradox. Here's the last verse for today. We'll pick it up next week. He says, remember this, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generous will also reap generously. There it is again. I don't know how many I have to show you to you see it like I've been seeing it. Now you just see it everywhere. The paradox, the paradox, the paradox. Now, this verse makes you flinch. I don't like this verse. I'm like you. Because this is the verse that has launched a thousand late-night preachers and their yachts. Got to sow a seed, brother. Sow a seed of generosity. It's what underpins, the, it's the primary verse of the prosperity gospel. It has been manipulated over the centuries to be that if you give money, God promises to give you even more money. If this is your interpretations, friends, this is not a a reference to the generosity paradox. This is an investment philosophy. This is using God as an investment manager. This has nothing to do with your heart. It's not what Paul meant. It's not what the science shows that if your motivation, and by the way, just like Paul said, generosity is all about motivation, the science shows if your motivation is selfish and, and, and not selfless, the paradox falls apart. See, people who use that verse, right, this way, they don't actually take the metaphor far enough to understand what he's saying. What do you sow? You sow seeds, right? When you sow a seed, do you hope to collect more seeds? Do you work and toil and water and fertilize so that you can one day, now I have more seeds. No, that's not what you want. That's not even what you would put the effort into if you were just getting seeds back. You want fruit. You want something so much more useful, so much more life-sustaining and life-giving and valuable, something you could actually eat. And with that said, I'll, I'll close with Paul's encouragement. Remember this, he said. I love that he started it that way. Remember this to the rich church in Corinth because you're likely not to. You're likely to get scared You're likely to to put your trust and your hope in your stuff. You're likely to try to impress people with with what you have. You're likely just naturally going to move towards hoarding. You're likely to sabotage your own life. And that's what the scripture and the science are both warning us about. If we sow seeds but get back fruit, then what's the fruit? I'll pick that up next week. But the question for today is, is the one that both Jesus and the social scientists today would ask. If you know this is true, then what will you do about it? I mean, this is weird, right? I mean, I straw, I'm trustless. I'm just like you. I, I struggle with this one. Like, okay, Jesus said it, and the science proves it, and so John, trust it. Ugh. Let me just look at my four hundred one k balance one more time. It's funny. We test God's patience all the time, right? We rely on Psalm 103 that says he doesn't always treat us as our sins deserve. We test God's grace all the time. In fact, this is what we rest our faith on is God's grace. We trust in it. We preach about it. Are you willing to at least test God's promise when it comes to the paradox? We'll work on how in the coming weeks. It's not a giving talk. It's a talk about being generous to people in every area of our lives with every gift you've been given. But God wants for you what comes from the paradox. And so he wants you so desperately and he understands, this is why God talks so much about money. He understands how hard it is and how powerful it is in our lives and what it's doing to our souls and our culture and our communities. The proof is all here. And he wonders, will you give it a shot? In fact, it's so important, you know, in Deuteronomy, God says, don't, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Some of you know when Jesus was tempted in the desert, he, he responded, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. This is the only place where we find this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That, my friends, is the paradox of generosity. Do you believe it? And are you willing to give it a try? Let's stand and close in song.